I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Shooting the shit's the best. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know what is the best is uh, when we get the opportunity to sit down with a guest that we've had on the show before that we were just so smitten with. Chuffed to bits. Oh my goodness. Chuffed, Enamored. Chuffed, chuffed to bits. Um, uh, uh, That's a terrible English accent. <laughs> hey, hold on. Hey, man. Do your, do your, do your good one. No, no. I don't want to do my good one. Oh, no, 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 no. No, do your like, oh, do, your, do your like I'm trying. Oh, one. come on. All right, fine. <clears throat> Jolly good. <laughs> Boy. Uh, Julia Samuel, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you have been living under a friggin' rock uh, and you haven't been listening to the podcast for a long time, then you might have missed our first conversation with Julia. Uh, Julia is a, uh, a British uh, psychotherapist <laughs> and a pediatric counselor. And um, honestly, I, I've, I've said this. I've said this numerous times, even when you weren't on the show, Julia. I've talked about that episode so much. Um, it was one of the one of my favorite conversations we've ever had to date, and uh, wow. I knew I knew we were going to have you back on, and I know that we're going to have you back on after this because um, uh, you've you've recently released a book. It's not available here yet in Canada, um, but it is available in the UK. So to all of our UK listeners who who still bear listening to us <laughs> after I after after that fucking accent uh, that I tried. Um, the book is available there, but um, but we'll have you back on when the book's out here in Canada and we'll, we'll talk all about that then. But uh, Julia, take a, take a moment for the folks that maybe are, are kind of newer to the podcast or haven't listened to your episode. Take a moment to introduce yourself um, and let us know uh, who you are and, and, and the sort of work that you do. Well, I'm thrilled to be with you and your energy, although you're thousands of miles away, is very uplifting. So thank you for inviting me back. I'm um, a psychotherapist. I've been a psychotherapist for over 30 years. Um, I'm an author. I've written three books, all of which have been bestsellers. And they're all sort of case studies of my work with clients around the first one was Grief Works, which was about loss and death and dying. And the second one was about living losses. So about things that often aren't acknowledged or legitimized as loss, like losing your job or breaking out with a partner or um, moving country or getting a health diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So that was, I think, what we talked about last time. Mm -hmm. That was called This Too Shall Pass. And my new book is Every Family Has a Story, How We Inherit Love and Loss. And that's looking at what gets passed down in families from generation to generation in ways of behaving and patterns. And, um, and again, that's case studies. So I um, do that. I do tons of podcasts because I, I, I guess my main, well, I love relationship is my main thing. So I love 
being connected with people. Mm-hmm. And I think that the more knowledge and understanding that we have of ourselves, that enables us to be able to be in a good relationship with ourselves and others, then we are happier. You know, love is strong medicine. Love is the thing that really matters. Mm. And I think there's a lot of ignorance and a lot of sort of triteness that's said about mental health and not real Mm. knowledge and understanding. So the more I can do that by talking to people like you, Mm. um, the happier I am. I'm I'm really curious. I've been uh uh Julie, I'm so happy to to have you back on the podcast and talk to you, especially like at this time in my life. I feel like I'm going through a bit of a, a transition. And the things that you were just talking about um really connect with, with me specifically in this moment because uh this weekend I'm moving into a new apartment um wow. with my partner. And we've oh, been wow. dating long distance for a long time. So there's a lot of things like that we're we're working through and figuring out about you know, going through a move and moving into this next sort of chapter together. Um, don't say for, what you said to me earlier, though. I won't. <laughs> like, don't yeah. say that. No, no, we'll cut this part. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank God. Um, but no, but that I have to hear, right? I'm just fucking with, with Brad. Um, but <laughs> you know, Maddie is listening. <laughs> and you know, when you said that, Maddie immediately was like, well, what the fuck yeah, did yeah, he say? I, I'm going to have explaining to do about nothing later. Uh, <laughs> no, no. But, but the, but the interesting thing that I've been thinking, so, you know, in, in talking to my therapist, I realized like even when I have good intentions about some some things, like um, maybe I don't necessarily communicate them in the right way or, you know, they can have like knock on effects that even though my intent is is I feel like pure and, and in in the best interest of a relationship, sometimes your intent, you know, might not the thing the way that you handle situations um, it might not result in the or, or end up in the result you're looking for. But I think that that is even more amplified in another big, you know, sort of transition that's happening in our lives, which is uh, Taylor having a kid. Ooh. And you know, I think about the challenge of 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 parenting and the sort of like unintended consequences or impact that you can have on a kid, um, even when you're trying to like you know care for them or love them in in whatever way you think is appropriate. So, like to give a specific example, um, like you know, say you have a a 10 year old kid who's just come home from school and, you know, they're struggling with uh, meeting the deadline of an assignment that they have due. And I feel like my um, first inclination would be to like, try to help them. Like I want to, you know, make that stress that they're feeling go away, make it easier for them. But then you, you know, that might be your initial reaction, but then you start to realize like, oh, well, if I swoop in and save them, then like, you know, they're not going to have an opportunity to learn Ooh. from being in a challenge. And so like thinking about all these, like all these like small decisions that we make that have these like knock on effects over time. It's like, how do we, how do we not fuck up our kids or like our, our friends' kids? And, and I feel like this is probably a lot of the work that you do is, is looking at, you know, how unpacking how, that yeah, fuckery. Yeah, yeah. Because it can be really overwhelming <clears throat> yeah. to think as like, you know, a parent or support system in, in a young kid's life. Like how do you make sure that you're not fucking them up long-term? I mean, I, I completely get what you're saying is that you like, actually, I think every parent wants to do the best they can both as a partner in a relationship and moving and transitioning and also, you know, bringing out your children. But I think what you kind of have to realize is 
that where you love and care most, you hate most, you make your deepest mistakes, and you will you will always have fights with the people you care most because mm. you're the most vulnerable with them. You risk most with them. You see them probably more. And so it isn't about not making mistakes. I think it makes an enormous difference, the intention with which you go about things. So I think you're right in your intention attitude. I think it improves your outcomes. But I think what matters is that you know how to repair after a mistake. So you have a rupture or you make a mistake with your child or with your partner. And then you know how and you kind of fight and you fight productively, not in a way where you kind of massacre each other with words. Mm. And then you have a kind of structure to repair where you, you know, once the heat of the argument is dropped or the, the thing that's gone wrong is dropped, you find a way of talking about it. And in that you often get closer because you find out what's really going on. And it's very rarely that you didn't take the bins out or, you know, you were late. There's often it's to do with kind of love and attention or something else is, is going on. Mm -hmm. I I, I also, I, I, when I hear you say that, Brad, I kind of think like, I think of how I've had that similar thought, but then I also think that, that worrying or, or, having it top of mind that every little thing could have this outsized impact on a person is just as, as could be, could be more devastating Ooh. than actually, than what the actual outcome is, is thinking that, you know, this small thing that I yeah. got wrong is going to, you know, change the way my, my kid thinks when they're 17 yeah. years old or and, how and, they talk to people. Or and that, I think, I think what you just said there, like that, that even translates to, you know, because I think what you were saying there, Brian, also kind of translates to your situation right now with with Maddie moving into a new place. And like, um, you know, like if you if you were like constantly worried about the the decisions or the, the things that you did for or around your partner, like, yeah. and that was all you <laughs> yeah. fucking worried about, like, that, how, you know, how how much of that insecurity would come out in the relationship itself and like how. Well, how much of a struggle that would be? Here's a Julia, a question for you, and from from your from your experience in your work in um, psychotherapy, like how how do you how do you identify the things that have happened in someone's past that are worth digging into and exploring, like something that mm-hmm. something that has an impact, but like Good an question. impact an impact in the way that and, 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 and I say that in the way that I not tr- trying to not get a, a person to, to overanalyze something that may have, that they may remember and they might've had a, had a small impact on them, but not to, not to, not to outsize that or overanalyze that thing as if it, you know, has, has controlled a, a huge chunk of their life. And, and in order to get to the things that, do have a, a you know profound impact on them and to focus on those things easy question <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i mean there are there are so many things that come up when you're speaking so that my first kind of thought in trying to get everything right it takes me to the winnicott there's a there was a child psychologist here called donald winnicott who worked in the 70s 60s 70s and 80s and he after a lot of research as a pediatrician like a, a psychologist came up with this term good enough, like the good enough parent, the good enough mother, the good enough father. 
And I think that is where we're aiming, that to try and go for perfection, as you know, is a kind of route to absolute misery. Mm -hmm. And so to kind of know that we all move on a spectrum of functional and dysfunctional, depending on what's happening in our lives, our internal pressures, our external pressures. And as long as we can kind of recognize what the turbulence is and we can find ways of supporting ourselves when we're moving down the dysfunctional scale, then we kind of can regulate ourselves and kind of come back. But there will be times where you're really not your best self, but good enough is where to aim. And to answer the other kind of complicated question, there it's very subjective and there isn't really an answer. But I guess one of the things I noticed that when people come into therapy, they're coming because they're suffering in the present. There is something that's going on that has got them through my door that is really disturbing them. And they never really want to look back at the past and see what the roots of that were, whether it's they didn't have enough love and attention and secure attachment or they were insecure or there was something that happened at school. And so it's only really through the process of opening up and and kind of examining things deeper that you remember that at 10, you know, I had a memory the other day that I when I was... um, doing a play at school I was so pleased to get the part in the play it was it was called it was a dreadful play called she stoops to conquer and I had a main role called um I was called Mr Hardcastle and in all the rehearsals I was really good and then on the night of the performance I sucked I I forgot my words and I still have a kind of body memory of shaming myself Mm when I do performance things. Mm-hmm. And so I've done some treatment on that now, kind of some EMDR that's released some of that kind of awful shaming memory that that is going to happen to me. And so there's trauma that has a big trauma. You have event trauma, like the Grenfell Tower, we had this terrible um, uh, burning tower or you know some terrible accident or the war in Ukraine. And then there's these mini traumas that are, are, are trauma with a with a mid a small t that actually influence us far more powerfully than we realize at the time because they've gone way back in our memory but they silently influence us because the body remembers the body holds the score mm-hmm. so i guess one way of answering your question is is awareness is key which you three have in spades is when you notice a level of discomfort when you're moving towards something or when something is happening, is to kind of look at, does that happen a lot? Is that using a lot of my energy to kind of squash it down or to kind of make it go out the way? And if it's using a lot, using up a lot of me psychologically, mm-hmm. then probably it's worth examining. And also to kind of like sometimes... <coughs> You have a difficult day and it's just a difficult day yeah. and just mm. kind of let it go. Right. Yeah. And the, not thinking that it's, you know, it's something that happened when you were eight. Yeah. That's like, which is fucking up your day. But I think, I think it's when it's persistently difficult in a particular thing, that's mm. quite a good marker. Mm. Yeah. The, the thing I think about um, too, it, it is like the, it immediately makes me think of the benefit of like talk therapy for me, who is somebody who, who could, you know, very easily go down the rabbit hole of like overanalyzing things and thinking about things. Now that I go to therapy, I I think when I have a moment like that, where I start to have this thought that like, you know, 
might feel irrational to me or have that like moment of awareness where I'm like, ah, like that seems a little bit misplaced. I now like shelve it for therapy. I'm like, okay, cool. Like that's going to be something that I explore more. What do you mean? Sorry. Can you say that again? He he puts it in the pile to take to the therapist rather than worrying about it now. So rather than like, you know, just constantly going in this like cycle of overthinking things, but because you the, know you've got a period of of reflection that's reserved for can be reserved for that later. Right. It's like, you know, setting aside time on the podcast to talk about like hard moments. Like one of the things that we preach about, you know, having challenging tough conversations about, you know, your health, be it physical or mental health is like is like putting that time aside to talk about that thing with your friends and family. And I feel like I do that with like a a sort of like for lack of a better term, maybe trivial, trivializing this a little <laughs> bit, like a, a mental health coach in a sense, mm. um, like a professional to sort of sit with me there and like hold space and, and like meditate with me on these things. And the, the other thing I think about, like when you ask that question, Taylor, but like identifying, like what are those big moments in your life that have, um, led to this like trauma that you're holding? And, and Julia, as you say, like the body keeps the score for me, there's some that are obvious for me, like, you know, processing my parents divorce and how does that affect my relationships? But then there's things that like, are far less obvious that like come up during conversation. And then maybe I meditate on those things with my therapist. And maybe initially I think, Whoa, that moment that I didn't think of that just came into my head had a really profound effect. And then maybe I go for a couple months thinking like that has a lot of influence on me. And then maybe I revisit it again in another therapy session and go, actually, you know what? Never mind. But yeah. because I like have that space that I'm setting aside to do that, it allows me the, the opportunity to explore mm. those things at a, on a deeper level. Cause that, that but also just, help. Just, <laughs> just to interrupt though, is to say that by bringing it up and talking about it, it that first time you then light up the networks that begin to process it. So when yeah. you go and look at it two months time, you have a narrative around it, you understand it and you've incorporated it in the non-stress, non-danger part of your brain, like the library, because you've given yourself the narrative that you can understand. Yeah. So in that way, you've you've resolved it, but yeah. just by by bringing it up and talking about. So that so that little that piece answers kind of really answers it for me because my because the the genesis of that thought for me was was um, especially somebody who is like very open to therapy, like someone who's not going into therapy with a lot of reservations, mm-hmm. someone who's not going in and thinking, um, you know, I'm here because somebody suggested this and I'm not very open to it. Like somebody who goes in and, and is, and is, you know, like really, really open to like everything somebody is saying to them. And then, you know, somebody making a suggestion, like what about this? And then going, yeah, when that's not a thing, do you know what I mean? But, that, but you answered that in terms of going, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I took that and I thought that it was something and then I went away and I, and I thought about it more. And then when I came back, mm-hmm. I realized, ah, eh, that's actually not so influential. Yeah. You know I, I, mean? I think that's, um, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, like is somebody, you know, easily influenced or suggested that like something that wasn't necessarily a big, right. have a big impact in their life. Does, and not but, suggestive but, from the psychotherapist, but just, but, but just that it came up. Yeah. Not, not like that. Somebody's trying to put it on you. Yeah. And I think like that, um, you know, it helps to like have that mindset that like being open to ideas, exploring them, not 
believing them to be definitively one way or another. Right, and, like Jer with aliens. Contemplating them. Yeah, right. Like hey, hey, the, hey, 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 hey. If Jer went in and was like, I think yeah. aliens are real, and the therapist was like, Let, let's explore that more, and then he had really <laughs> attached himself to it, that could be detrimental to his mental health. Okay, well... Um, uh, I got a, I, I have a, I have a bit of a silly question, but I, I but I'm actually kind of serious about it because I've thought about this. I've thought about this a lot and I don't think we've ever really had a, a, a like a, a chance to speak to someone who works in like pediatric counseling. Um, and I'm, I'm just kind of curious on, on your take, um, about this, Julia. So, uh, for like a little bit of context. So, so when I, when I was, um, when I was a kid, when I was really young, I used to make really silly faces uh, at my dad and um, probably so much so that it like annoyed the fuck out of him. And so, so there was one time I was crossing my eyes at my dad and my dad was like, Jer, listen, uh, if you do that and the wind changes direction, (laughs) your eyes are going to stay like that. And and and, and that direction. scared the shit out of me. Yeah, my parents said that too. Okay, right. Well, they said they that did he, to me about milk, yeah. the moustache. Yeah. If I drank milk and I left the moustache yeah. on my yeah, my yeah, yeah. yeah. They, said, they just said my eyes would get stuck. Yeah, yeah. He said your eyes will stick that way and you'll never be able to like uncross them. And yeah. so I was and like, they well, said no one will ever love you. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, that's like really adding a hammer to okay, it. Yeah, that's a little deep. That, that does sound like something Don would say. And though. I went, Dad. <laughs> and so and so. So I was like, well, how often does the wind change direction? My dad's like, it's random and it happens several times a day. So you never know. And I was like, oh, shit. So so anytime I would cross my eyes going forward, I would do it for just a second and I'd be too scared to, to do it any longer. Now, fast forward, I was like, you know, 17 and I was sitting in a car with my my best friend at the time, Mitch, and uh, his father was driving. And Mitch's father um, was at the time he was a he was a. Um, an undercover RCMP officer. So he, he's, he would like, he, he looked like he was straight out of that show. Um, but the hell's angels, what's that show called? The, um, sons of anarchy. Sons of anarchy. Like he's a hard looking wow. dude. He would like, Tattoos he, he, and leather and- yep. Yep. And he would like, he would go undercover with like the, with the hell's angels, a very dangerous job, very dangerous man, very scary guy. And, uh, Mitch was crossing his eyes at me. And I, and I was like, I was dead serious. I was like, hey, 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 dude, whoa, hey, don't do like, don't uncross them. Don't do it too long because if the wind changes directions, um, your eyes will stay like that. And Aww. and 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 Mitch's dad, uh, he, I was in the back seat and he looks in the rearview mirror and he makes eye contact with me and he goes, "What did you just say?" And I said, "Well, if Mitch keeps his eyes like that for too long, um, and the wind changes direction, it'll it'll stick." They'll stick. How old are you at this I'm point? I'm 17. Oh, wow. And, and, uh, and Mitch's, Mitch's dad goes, who told you that? And I goes, uh, I was like, uh, my dad. And he goes, you're a fucking idiot. And I was, I was mortified. And then it hit yes, me. Yes, I can it, feel the shame. It, like, oh. it hit me. And I was like, oh my God, I am a fucking idiot. Like, yeah. I, I believed that for so long. We also had a conversation yesterday about how Jer well, thought that his dog went to the farm. <laughs> And then I, I'm 34 now and I texted my dad the other day and I was like, Eric did go to the farm, right? And my dad was like, no, we put him down. We just told you that as a kid. So, okay. So that's another example. Now, now I just recently, now I know that that actually, that actually really like that stuck with me. And that's, I, and I, I that did stained that kind of, there's a wound there. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt like I did feel really stupid. And, and, uh, and, and one of the, my biggest insecurities is feeling dumb. Like I, I yeah. that, and and I don't know where that comes from. It's, maybe it is from Mitch's dad calling me a fucking idiot, uh, which probably you know, a little I, bit I, earlier. Truth I, to tell. Yeah, probably. Um, 
so the other day I was hanging out with my nephew and he's three and he was picking his nose and eating it. And I was like, Hey, Hey, don't, don't be doing that, dude. And he was like, why? And I was like, cause that's gross. And he's like, no, they, they taste good. And I was like, well, no, you're actually, it's mud. You're eating mud. And he was like, no, it's not. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it is. So, so I showed him a video about what boogers are. And it was this video. And, and thank God the, the woman in the video is for kids. She, she referred to boogers similar to mud. And I was like, yes, yeah, see, but then there was this like little image that came up and she was like, here's what boogers really are. And she was breaking it down. And the, the images, this cartoon of boogers, they had eyes and they had these sharp teeth. I know. And I had this moment. I wasn't thinking, but I was like, see, buddy, see those sharp teeth? And he goes, yeah. And I go, well, your boogers have sharp teeth. And if you eat them, they're going to, they're going to, enough will be in your belly that they'll, they'll eat you from the inside out. They'll eat outside your belly. So, so <laughs> Julia's face right now. <laughs> so fast forward, like another. Can I just say, what were you thinking? No. So, so a week you later. You single-handedly destroyed I, I, I fucked him up. So a week later, I go back to my sister's and I'm hanging out with, with Austin again. He's so cute. And he's picking his nose. And I see him pick his nose. He pulls the booger out. And then he goes over to my sister. And he hands it to her and she goes, oh, thank you. And she like takes it and, you know, whatever, like Puts throws it on the ground. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I go, hey, buddy, you didn't eat your boogers. And he goes, yeah. And I was like, how come? And he goes, as if I had never told him this. Like it's, it's like he forgot. He goes, well, they have teeth and they'll eat me from my belly. They'll eat, out my, eat my belly out if I, if I eat them. And I was like, whoa, oh, no, like <laughs> that stuck with you. You believe that now. So, so all that to say, my question is, you know, when it comes to things like that, or even also, like Jared, Jared just left out the part where he said, yeah, that's right. I <laughs> yeah, will. I did. Actually, I did. I did. I said, that's right, buddy. And that's that's good that you're not eating. them. And so so like with things like that or like things like even like, you know, you know, like I know I, I've heard from people that that like feel like they got they really like they were really fucked up from finding out that like Santa wasn't real. That's what I'm I was thinking. thinking you know, like, that's too. exactly yeah. like, what those, I'm thinking. Those yeah. types of things where like kids are just like, holy shit, I've been lied to this whole fucking time from the from the people that I that I've held on this pedestal that, you know, and they just, they thought I was some idiot and they, they lied to me. And well, it's like something that everybody, everyone's in everyone on. Everyone is yeah. in on it and every kid goes talk about, through it. Talk about believing conspiracy theory. I mean, just think <laughs> about Santa for a second. Yeah. You, that's, you start to believe it. The so, Santa so thing has less of an impact though, because, sorry to distract from this, but, but because every, like I was able to forgive my parents because everybody, everybody does yeah. it, right? So I, I know this is really stupid and silly, but I, I, I actually am wondering like, how, what kinds of what kinds of impact can that have on a kid? You know, like these sorts of silly things that we do as adults to kind of like manipulate. Yeah, manipulate, <laughs> like just to make a kid like stop doing a thing that we don't like or like whatever. Like, can can that can that can, could I have fucked Austin up? <laughs> I mean, it's, I very much doubt that in on its own would fuck him up at all. So you're safe. Oh, but uh, you know, I I I think. What matters is that children trust you mm. and that we feel safe fully who we are in our bodies, in our minds, with our parents, around our kitchen table and in all the different places that we go. And if we're going to feel safe, we need to be told the truth, whatever mm. the truth is. And so on the one hand, not being told the truth in order to protect children, like from death or from difficult things going on in the world, and they will always find out, that is very unhelpful because then they don't know what to trust in you. Mm. And on the other hand, scaring children into not doing stuff because you want to control them <laughs> from doing sort of negative behaviours is also not the truth, and that isn't helpful either. Mm -hmm. So I think 
being honest with our children in small things and big things is how you really build, you know, trusting, secure, loving relationships with them. Yeah. Threatening I mean, them doesn't really work. Yeah I, ha- yeah. I have a, I have a nephew who is adopted and he was adopted when he was six years old. Uh, yeah, he was six years old. And I know, I don't know really the details of, of, of his family life before that. I know that there was some not so good things. And, um, and when he arrived with us, like he, he, he and his little brother who was three, um, they, they really integrated really well. I mean, there was, there was, you know, there was, there was obviously bumps in the road, but like they, there was, it was really, it was quite smooth. I think more smooth than I surprising. Yeah. Two thirds of, Older adoptions, I the stats in this country are that they, they don't work out. Whereas if you're a baby adoptee, yeah. they do work out. But if, once you're over four or five, they often don't work out. Yeah. And, and so that's and, amazing. And the older one is incredibly intelligent. And and um, I'm a very sarcastic person. And I lie for uh, funny, for, for I, I lie for the sake it. of humor a lot. Yeah. Um, and... And, and so when I would be sarcastic with him and he didn't quite get sarcasm and he would get really serious and sad when I would say, say, and, and then, so I kind of realized like, oh, that doesn't really, that doesn't really, um, that doesn't really work. Like I can't, both of you have to laugh for it to be funny. Yeah. And I, and I don't, and I I have to kind of change the way that I'm humorous with him and, and kind of change my sense of humor to, to help him because he's not really doing that. But then over time, you know, I kind of saw that we started to develop a relationship where, because when you mentioned that kids need to trust us, like that's kind of how I felt when he would be sad. I would go, oh, I feel like I'm betraying his trust. Like he's never going to believe me when I say anything. And then that's like kind of slowly morphed into, into what my, my initial intention was where I would say something to him and he would laugh know that I'm lying to him and then, and then I'll, and then he'll get the real answer from me. And that, you know, the, but the foundation is, is a lie and a laugh, you know, a lie in quotations, a lie and a laugh. And then we laugh and teasing. Yeah. And I go, you can never believe me, but here's the truth. And we have a laugh about it. And uh, yeah, I guess that, that was all to say, I guess that really like kind of struck me when you said, you know, kids need to trust us and, and yeah, I guess that really makes me think about what you said, Jer, like Ooh. how, cause there was tons of stuff that I think there's tons of stuff that are, that I mean, all of our parents have told us over the years in order to get us to not do things that, <clears throat> yeah, you know, instead of, instead of the, cause I think that's a bit of a, that's, there's so many things that you can do that are an easy path to getting a kid to, to do what you want rather than like the longer probably more beneficial path to getting them to you know not eat their boogers (laughs) but the the other i think the thing that's interesting in in what you talked about is that being known as who you are is one of the kind of definitions of love so that you really saw him as he is and you were tuned and responded to him and then that enabled him to trust you and then you could play with him and tease him and and you could both kind of get it and enjoy the dance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think often in families, what is complicated is that, you know, 
often parents say, I don't understand it. You know, I've got three kids and I brought them all up exactly the same, but they're so different. But actually, we're born different. And where we are in the the birth order makes us different. And our parents treat us differently. So that being seen as you are fully and responded to as you are, rather than all of you as one person, builds confidence because you're known. And so you don't get the kind of label of you're the sporty one and you're the stupid one. I mean, I'm wondering with you where your thing about not being clever, like I was the youngest of fives and I was always the stupid one because I was always kind of running to catch up and I didn't know stuff and I was smallest. I mean, I'm with a twin, but smallest. Mm. Um, So I think one of the things is really knowing your kids and responding to the kid in front of you, not just this assumptive person that is a version of how you were brought up repeating it all over again. Mm. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. You you just mentioned uh, that you're you're a twin, and I've got twin sisters. My mom had five children in four years. Whoa! Wow! I, I'm wow. I'm a I have an identical twin brother, and oh, do you? Um, That's interesting. Yeah, it was like it, <laughs> that's interesting. That explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the well, analysis rivalry. begins. <laughs> people, people say twins is such a lovely thing, but there's a lot of rivalry in twins. Mm. Do you, do you um, is that a net you're benefit? You're fighting or? for space. You're yeah. fighting for space and attention and love at the same time at your mm. developmental moment. Yeah, right. it's it's funny because like I like my my brother's like my favorite person in the entire world and and like I'm so okay. thanks, dude. Um, okay, whatever. Right. <laughs> remember I'm, that. I'm, I'm so grateful for like the experience that we had growing up and like I never saw it as like a like I never saw a conflict between the two of us resulting from like you know, either competing for attention or competing for love. Amazing. But like, there was certainly like a lot of like, you know, we competed against one another in sports and things, but. You're also but, very close to each other in sport competition, like like very neck and neck sport. I mean, if, if you're yeah, identical, you'd have the same talent, right? You'd have the yeah. same genetic code. So the same predisposition to be right. good at the, sport or clever. Or... The thing that I, I wonder more about, and I'm curious if, if you've, if you've seen this at all, like through the, the work that you do too, um, like, is there a challenge with, um, identity and in twins in terms of like, you know, trying to find your own sense of individuality? I think there must be. I mean, I haven't done a lot of the research, um, but I think within a family, I think there's always a challenge about identity of who am I and, and are all the different aspects of me. So each aspect of identity needs to have a sense of belonging and to be loved. Mm. So whether it's your identity as a white guy, as this religion, as this um, profession, as this sexuality, all the different identities need to have a sense of love and belonging. And I think in twins, 
We also need to believe that we're unique and have to stand out in order to attract a mate. It's a kind of evolutionary aspect of ourselves. So when you're looking at an identical person at you, how do you, how are you unique and stand out? And I don't know what happened with you and your brother, but it sounds like it worked out fine, but Mm. I can't imagine it always does. That's, that's a really um, interesting thing that I've, that I've never, ever thought of. But if I was to like dig back a little bit in terms of like my experience and how I viewed, um, my brother and I together, I would say that like the, the one thing that was sort of like the negative thought that would creep into my mind, especially in like junior high and high school was like, why would a girl be interested in dating me when I have, when I'm, you know, not remarkable in the sense that like I have a, basically somebody who looks exactly like me and is similar to me in a lot of, a lot of ways. So I wonder if that, because like I've always sort of, um, like to you know do the opposite of like what is expected i think of you and and um i've sort of like just attributed that to like you know wanting to um carve my own path in this world and be true to my own individual experience but like i wonder how much now that is shaped by the fact that like i wanted to stand out from like that sense of because like growing up i was it was like those are the Stever twins, not like yeah, that is they're Brian, the twins, they're, the boys. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's, a, that's such an right. interesting like, thing I've like, never thought like of. Because you way. and Dennis are remarkably different, and how much of that is because you're different, or because you sought to be different? Yeah, 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 Pro- and probably more of the latter. <laughs> Must well, be yeah. fascinating, Must really be. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that you said uh, earlier on, Julia, was that you you really love um, being connected with people, yeah, and. Um, and I think partly I, because I'm a twin, right? Because yeah. if you think in utero, you're sucking each other's thumbs, your toes are, get, are pressed against each other, Aww. your nose to nose, <laughs> head to head. So if you see, tw- and even when twins are born, if they're put in a cot together, my tw- my brother and I, being old fashioned, we were kind of separated and put in different rooms. But mm-hmm. normally, you put nowadays you would put twins in a cot together, and they still hold on to each other mm-hmm. and kind of loop together. Yeah. I think that's what I'm always after. Is that, is, are, would you say your one of your love languages is uh, is like physical touch? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Same, I had same. to teach my husband of 42 years to hold my hand. <laughs> yeah. He kind of, <laughs> he just always wants to pull it away. But now he just, let, now he kind of lets it hang. It's, it's <laughs> I, I would say that's tr- that's true for me too. And I remember when my parents um, first gave my brother and I each our own rooms. Um, it was probably like, we were probably like six or seven at the time. Um, every night we would, in the middle of the night, go into each other's rooms and get Aww. in the same bed again and Aww. sleep in the bed. That's so cute. Yeah. Um, because it's what you know from your most yeah. fun, you know, formative moments. Yeah. yeah. It's literally uh, formative. I, uh, so knowing that, knowing that this, like this connection with other people is Thingy. so, is so yeah. important to you, um, just kind of from like, a, from a COVID context, just kind of wondering personally for you, how, how, how hard was COVID for you in, in, in the set, like, you know, with, with, um, with isolation and lockdowns and, and not really being able to be out and, and like seeing and connecting with people that, that I'm sure you were used to, you know, um, back like 2019 and before, um, because like, I I'm noticing, I, I think I can speak for the three of us. Like we, all three of us really love like connecting with others and, and be like, we're quite social and we like being around folks and groups of, of friends and stuff. Um, and I, I've found like coming back into, into, you know, real person, the, the real world, um, yeah. <clears throat> that, 
there's this really this really weird sort of duality happening where there's like there's the part of me that is just feeling so rich and so like overwhelmingly elated with being able to be just like surrounded by people in a in a in a small room and like and seeing people that I love but then there's there's also this kind of um because it's so stimulating because it's so overwhelming because it's something that I like haven't done for 2 years that it's it's I don't want to say that there's another part of me that doesn't like it but almost like there's this part of me that 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 gets exhausted by it very quickly. It's overwhelming. Yeah. Be, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It, it really true, like overwhelming in the truest sense. And yeah. so <laughs> like, is I'm, I'm curious about, you know, first, firstly, I'm curious about what your experience has been like, but then secondly, for the folks that have that similar feeling that I'm having, like, is that, is that just a, is that just a transitionary period or, or like, or is this going to be forever? You know, like, <laughs> like, am I just, have I just been like programmed now to, to forever be overwhelmed by, you know, being surrounded by the people that I love. So my experience, I was really lucky. So um, part of the time I live in the country outside of London. So when I was here, my husband lives with me and my daughter, who's got three teenage children, is in a cottage next to us. Mm. And then my other family live near it, very near. So we formed a kind of bubble of quite a lot of us. So I was with my family all of the time. And also I were, I have, I mean, I, I, I say this with quite a lot of sort of brings back a lot of feelings is that I, I worked unbelievably hard because there was, I have never seen so much suffering in my life as during the two years of COVID. Mm. Um, so I was supporting charities of people who were bereaved. I had a lot of work with clients I supported a, a intensive care unit, the staff who where they were working with people who who were in intensive care who were dying. And so on the one hand, I felt incredibly useful and that I had a real purpose and meaning. And I felt grateful that I had something that I could do. And so I worked incredibly hard. Um, but it was tough being with so much distress and seeing so many people suffering and that everything was made so much worse by what you're describing is this isolation is that we know we're wired for connection and so many people you know said goodbye to their 40-year married partner of a 40-year marriage you know who are in an ambulance and think mm. they were thinking they were going to come back in two days time and they died of COVID in hospital and you never saw them again they had a zoom funeral so there was it was absolutely devastating and I think the long-term effects of that we will be seeing in our therapy rooms for years to come mm. um, and the young people have suffered immensely you know the stats here are terrible for young people um, much more anxiety, many more eating disorders, more self-harm, more um, suicide. So I think the disconnection has caused, you know, and also for the communities of disproportionate difficulties, it's been much worse. So mm. getting kind of getting serious, I think the impact is absolutely massive. Mm. Um, from your perspective of being social, we are wired to adapt and change. And so this transition of being back into being with lots of people and noise um, is uncomfortable in your system. But you, as long as you kind of regulate yourself and give yourself a, a, 
a way of transitioning into it and a way of transitioning out of it. And you don't do too much all at once. You will naturally adapt. Mm. So, I mean, you don't go back to 2019 kind of socialising, but, you know, gradually go in and do it so that you can you can adapt and grow and then you'll fully enjoy the pleasure mm. of it. Mm. It's such a it's such a fascinating um, question, I think, especially for young people in the way that um, it's easy to feel like it's easy to feel like there's just two sides of the conversation in terms of COVID and like what what we did, um, what societies and governments did and um, or what we didn't and um, and saying that something was good or bad. But um, I, I feel like the real majority of people are kind of down the center and going, you know, we we did what we did, but when are we, when we're going to look back and, 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 and go, what, you know, what were the drawbacks to the things that we had to do or that we felt we had to do? Um, and I don't say that in a judgmental way. Like, no, that I think we did wrong. the best we could of what we believed was right at the time. And I think the research it'll be really fascinating and it's already coming out, isn't it? Some of the research to see whether lives were saved and what, what the mental health cost was and the financial yeah. cost was. I mean, there's yeah. certainly a mental health pandemic. The, the mental, the mental health piece is like, is, I mean, you can, you can see, you just, you, you, you feel it, you feel it in others around you. You feel it. I feel it. Like even somebody who, even as somebody who feels by and large fair, I, I am, I am extremely adaptable and and resilient. And and even though I feel that, I notice these little things like um um I noticed uh and I've said this to you guys a bunch of times, you know, going uh it's ten o'clock, I'm gonna take my dog out to uh go to use the bathroom for the last <laughs> time before we go to bed. I hear somebody in the hallway before I go out and I think to myself, I'll just wait until they're I don't hear them in the hallway. And that's yeah. so unlike, like that's such, such a Ooh. weird, that's so weird for me. But, but even though the I'm. People are vectors of disease rather than nice human being that you can say goodnight to and, but, kind and of it's, thing. And, it, and it's, and for me, it's not the, it's not the disease part. It's the, it's the feeling that they might think that that's what I am. Mm. Oh, okay. Mm. I, well, and, do you know, I mean, yeah. so I guess. But it's people the, it's are a, either yeah, threatened yeah. or threatening. And yes. so it's right. the discomfort. So rather than the warmth or seeing someone and feeling nothing, which most yeah. of us do, but people now come with a, a heightened yeah. sense of something, and yeah. we have that in yeah. response. And, and even, I think all of us do, like, are you wearing a mask? Are you not wearing a mask? And a lot of people have found the transition from pyjamas and Netflix to going out incredibly difficult, incredibly yeah. difficult. And well, some people, I think, won't. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious about that, though, in the sense that um, so pre pandemic, I worked in an office and I only, I work with uh, two other colleagues, but we had an office space. And, you know, when, when we, um, when COVID started, we, we, um, terminated Canceled. our lease and, yeah. and now work remotely. And, um, the co like, it's very common now for people to work entirely virtually. And, and I wonder, because I saw this shift was happening, you know, even pre pandemic Before, with, yeah. especially with kids in school, you know, um, now learning on laptops and being more connected with their devices. Um, even with the advent of email, um, with people starting to communicate 
via words on a screen rather than face to face or even over the phone. Like uh, in like, an office that they'd send someone a text who's two desks away. Yeah. 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 Well, well, like what, like the, the landscape of like how we communicate and the, and how we use technology to communicate, like has, does that, I'm not sure if you can speak to this in terms of like the studies that are happening or, or, you know, the impact that you've seen directly, but like, are there things that we should be doing to try to engage in more like face-to-face human interactions? I mean, I do, the research is still kind of ongoing, Mm -hmm. um, but we are wired to connect. And I think, you know, digital devices and like us meeting now has saved us. I mean, if I hadn't had Mm -hmm. this, you know, capacity to meet virtually, I think I would have gone mad and and so it saves us, but we do need physical human connection. You know, when you look at monkeys kind of taking the kind of, um, what do they do? You know, they, they, uh, like the poos from each other's hair. Well, they, yeah, they, well, the poos and they kind of scratch each other and they do it to soothe, you know, that thing of physically being with someone. I think your system physiologically, goes from fourth gear down to second gear when you're in the room you can read their body you can read their signals you can go for a hug you can make a cup of tea you can pat somebody rather than having to do a whole spiel and you can do so much by just a small pat Mm -hmm. and I think particularly for young people you know it's not like they're in fabulous mansions where they're having a fabulous time they're often in very small accommodation which they're working from their bedroom and, and and then sharing a tiny kitchen with other people and they should be going outside and dancing and flirting and having sex and playing and experimenting and trying stuff out and dancing and you know all of that and it's been I think devastating that they haven't had that opportunity mm-hmm. we I mean, need think- to play I think that's the thing mm-hmm. I mean I need to play and have fun So if you work really hard, you need the other side of the coin where you're not being serious, where you play, where you fun, where you laugh, where you're teasing your nephew, where you do stupid stuff, where you skip. You know, you need that to reset yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're at home, you don't. I mean, the thing I found hard was because I I didn't have any fun, I felt like Wednesday was Friday. You know, it was exhausting. Yeah. not having anything to look forward to it was like oh my god it's wednesday <sighs> so it was you know it was really hard work and, and guys and maybe that's why about... we played so many fucking video games oh, tons that's dude. it that was our that was our connection. <laughs> that was how we hung out yeah we <laughs> yeah. hung out on <laughs> that's how we played <laughs> and when you think about when i when when i think about me as a uh, i'm 31 so and i was i guess what i would in 29 when the pandemic started 28 or 29 whatever it was um you know, the, the, you know, I'm changing, obviously I'm changing quite rapidly still, but yeah. not, not really in relation to like a 16 year old spending two years in a pandemic yeah. or yeah. a 20 or an 18 year old going into university like that. It, thinking of what was taken from those people is like monument. Like I can't even begin to wrap my head around how how impactful that will be on the rest of somebody's life. I I wonder if there's any aspect of the fact that like the fact that we've all gone through it together, that will, that like 
you know, is, is in some way a silver lining. Like, you know, when, when those, like, n- not to say that it's better than if it, yeah. if it didn't happen, but like, I mean, it got so divided that I don't know, but I, I wonder though, like in, like in 12 years or, or 22 years when like an 18 year old is 40, will they look back and go, Oh fuck, you're 40 man pandemic going through that, mm. going to university. That was fucking crazy. Right. And like, I think I think that that would probably be the case if it it remain if the attitude about the pandemic remained the same as it was in those first like three months where where where, where there did really seem to be like a we're all in this together like type a slumber thing. party this yeah. is fucking scary and yeah cool and then it, the and then it, and then people got tired and people got frustrated and politics got involved and yeah. you know everything kind of got split into a bunch of different directions but I think so, you're right Brian I mean inevitably it will be like that you know it will be. It will. It will have the. It will yeah. have the same. It, it. It's. It's this generation's version of like World War Two. Maybe. Where, you know, yeah, like maybe Vietnam, two, or Vietnam. Or Vietnam. Yeah, yeah exactly. Was, two people s- go. Wow. We. Oh, you're the same age yeah. as me. Like. Remember man, that. Remember that thing we all back went through. Nom. Yeah. 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 Back in Nam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would be good if it all coagulates into that's, a similar. That's what, what were you going to say, Julie? Yeah. <laughs> well, on the other end of it, so I had four grandchildren who some were born at the beginning of lockdown and some were born at the end of lockdown. And those babies had a massive impact. They didn't meet another baby for two years. So one of my grandchildren didn't see another child for months. Mm. And then when they did meet them, they got these incredible chest infections because they had no immunity. Whoa! And so, I mean, and I think there's quite a lot of delay in learning for five-year-olds because they don't know how to communicate enough. Their social skills haven't been fully developed. I think the research shows that young girls, 14-year-olds in particular, they're part of their kind of uh, neurotransmitters of learning and socializing weren't fired up. So I think all of that, we don't know the outcome mm. yet. And, really- and hopefully because the brain is, has this amazing superpower of plasticity, it will just re- Ignite and mm-hmm. yeah. imagine that as that that would be such a good uh, like sci-fi movie plot where you know, like you you travel to a new planet and you arrive there and you're there for two years and then all of a sudden you realize that there are other humans on the planet that you didn't know existed because like imagine being a baby being born and being able to communicate and for two years you're like um. A fucking I'm the guy. Human. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But yeah. everybody looks at me and they're like pinching my cheeks and shit, and, yeah. and everyone's like, excited when I'm walking. Yeah. And then there's, then you find out, you find the underground people that there's so many other <laughs> yeah. little babies yeah. like you, yeah. and Julia, then they make you sick when you meet them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, Julia, you said you've been watching too much sci-fi. Oh yeah, not never enough, really. <laughs> Julia, you said something right at the very beginning of the uh, of um, um, right at the very beginning of our conversation that um, that's sparked a, a thought in my head that I was kind of waiting for an opportunity to bring up. But um, um, you said something along the lines of uh, people's idea or, or thought of mental health um, and how um, people can feel quite trite about it um, and, and treat it uh, and, and, I'm I'm forgetting the way that you the, the way that you framed it, but but it, it kind of sounded in the, in in terms of like that it can be very easy to be you know dismissed or um, misunderstood as maybe a selfishness or um, or something that like, uh, just a character a character trait that you might not like. Um, 
And I was uh, watching a show last night, uh, Euphoria, and is that with the Irish girl? Uh, no, no it's um, funny. Um, I know, I know what you mean. What's that? Oh wait, no, no, sorry. It is a uh, is Euphoria a remake of a of a anyway of a just cut one? that bit. It doesn't matter. So, so it's a, a addiction. It's addiction is a huge theme. Um, like the, if not the main theme a major, major theme. And the show is incredible, incredibly artistically done. Like it's incredibly well-made and the, sh- but the one thing that it has in common with a lot of other shows is that it's got like many different storylines. And then in this one episode, the ninth episode, it's just a one hour conversation at a diner between the main character and who's, who, who is addicted to, painkillers and opioids and her sponsor. And it's just a one hour, like Like a therapy session. Totally. Like a philosophizing and 20 minutes into the episode, you're going and they haven't left this scene (laughs) and you're going, wow, I've just been intently listening to this like back and forth dialogue between these two characters about, you know, this one character who's been, you know, sober for a decade and this, character who's in high school that's trying to find sobriety and dealing with addiction and suicidal thoughts and all these things. And, um, and the sponsor character says something about addiction and how people see somebody with addiction. Um, and says something along the lines of like, you, you know, people look at you and they don't see that you have a disease. They don't see that you have mental health issues that for whatever reason, something in your brain, when you were born, that when the first time you tried drugs, this thing, this spark went off and you know, what, however they framed it and that, and th- they see you as selfish. They see you as somebody who doesn't care. They see you as somebody who, <clears throat> who just wants to take and all, and all these kind of characteristics that you might ascribe to somebody who, who is an addict and, and how their addiction drives choices that they, you know, ended up, end up making. Um, and that, and he goes, but you know, the, the thing that you need to focus on is that you've got people like me and you've got people like that are in NA meetings and AA meetings that share this disease with you and see and understand why you make these choices. And it just, it, what you said at the very beginning of the episode kind of just really, um, made me think about how, how we see people with mental health issues and in the way that mental health is such a hard thing to understand in a person because it manifests as the way that you are. Mm. Um, I mean, I think that's, that's very powerful. And the big thing about mental health as opposed to physical health and why it has been the kind of poor relation to physical health is that it's invisible. And, you know, we're very, very judgmental about addiction. And the question shouldn't really be what is your addiction the question should be or why your addiction the question should be what is your pain and why the pain Mm -hmm. because you use the drugs the alcohol the self-medication whatever your addiction is to block the pain Mm -hmm. and it's the things that you do to block the pain that in the end do you harm and therefore people around you harm Mm -hmm. so you always have to get to the source of the pain and find out what it is 
that is so difficult and painful that you can't face it and find a way of facing it and coming to terms with it. Julia, I uh, I got to say, I said it at the beginning, I'm going to say it again. You're one of our favorite guests that we've ever had Thank on the show. You. It's such a friggin' pleasure to to see your face and to to have a conversation with you. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just... I'm dying for the day that we get to uh, sit down and and hang out in real life. Um, I'm sure the day will come at some point. I hope um, it does in in 2023. Yeah, That'd be amazing. Yeah, uh, which uh, which is when uh, every family has a story will be coming out in Canada, which we will be talking about that book at another time later in the future. But for folks who listen to the show that are living in the UK. Uh, the book is available now and uh, highly, highly suggest you go grab it, a copy because um, two of our favorite books that are on our bookshelf here at the studio are from Julia. And oh, wow. uh, they're, they're this two uh, shall pass and grief works. Uh, that's right. You can. Yeah. And they're uh, they, they're both incredible books. And I, I recommend them to to everyone, everyone I meet who's going through uh, through a rough time. <clears throat> Julia, thank uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cannot thank you enough. My thanks, pleasure. Thanks and for- and people can follow me on Instagram if they want. I do lots of kind of films and mm-hmm. content and stuff. So follow me yeah, there too. Uh, Julia Samuel MBE on, on Instagram. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for being so generous with your time today, Julia. This has been really fun. Really lovely. And, you know, it's such a pleasure. And I wish you all the best. And good luck with your new baby. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Don't, don't fuck that baby. And, and, moving, and moving in. Yeah, so are you, you the only one who hasn't aren't having a big life transition, Nigel? Uh I just started a new relationship with a oh, lovely, wow. with a lovely young lady. And, he also uh, just started a medication that basically gets rid of the chronic disease he's lived with oh, yeah. for, the, for oh, yeah, his entire yeah. life. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Yeah, my, my life's wow. changed big time. Yeah, it's it's yeah. been a it's wow. Been, yeah. We haven't even talked about that. I know. You know what? We'll talk about it next time we have you on. It's been a really crazy identity shift. And uh and, no, and I'm not a sick person anymore. It, it, Basically, yeah. Now, now I have to now I have to deal with the fact that I'm not going to die early. So that's uh, a lot of people are happy about it. I don't know how I feel about it. It's, it's quite exhausting, to be honest with you. God, such a burden. Thank God we have these therapy sessions. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because uh, <laughs> if you didn't laugh, you'd cry, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Got to uh, mask the pain somehow. I must say, I cannot. But that in my trade, this is called the 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 door handle drop. at the moment of leaving you say the thing that should have been at the front totally you know what thanks for that we'll put a pin in it we can talk about it another time i would i'd love to have you on to talk about that because it's uh it's been a trip um thanks again julia this has been really fun thank you bye-bye That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, Tell someone that you don't know that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy. 
and this is Sickboy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.